Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hey everyone, I'm feeling salty today. I don't know about you all, but this is going to be a little bit of a longer intro. We're going to do things just a little bit differently than normal. I did so much delicious research in anticipation of this podcast, and it's actually my hope. There's another expert I really want to have on, and I've invited him, but he's a little bit of a bigger catch, and I and I haven't caught him yet. But hopefully we'll get to dive deeper into this subject because what I found is that when I opened up this door of curiosity that there were so many more doors behind it. And so this intro is going to be a little bit longer, and I'm going to cover a little bit more, but I'm also going to save space for other experts I want to invite on to really plumb the depths of a topic that just really captured my curiosity, and I'm really, really excited to see if it captures yours too. And so... Let me preface this by saying that my love of salt runs deep, and I don't know about you all, but I have a feeling that I'm not the only person that's feeling salty today. And salt is salt is really central to my diet. My husband and I go through a decent amount of salt about every... Nine to 10 months, we order a 25-pound bag of salt from Redmond's in Utah, and that really serves as the backbone of the salt that we use in our kitchen, and we keep it in a big old jar right on the stove, and we pull it out in little scoops and pinches and sometimes in like full fistfuls if we're cooking in bulk. And so I'm really excited to start to look at where does salt come from? And how is it mined? And what is its relationship with the earth and with our bodies? And so today we have an incredible guest, Nancy Bruns from JQ Dickinson Salt Works in West Virginia to talk about her family's seven generation process for pulling salt out of the earth. But first we're going to explore salt just a little bit more. And so as we traverse this conversation together, I really want you to to picture all of these things happening in your body, your body's relationship with the earth and with the ocean and with salt itself, because this is a critical mineral in our bodies. And I don't want to overlook that, right? Salt isn't just seasoning. It's not just something that makes our food taste better. It's not something that just mitigates bitterness or even makes our food taste sweeter. Salt is an act actual mineral that is required for our bodies to function and required for our bodies to truly function optimally. So I want to take us back to the ocean. But before I do that, I want to start us off with a quote from Rumi. You are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. 
Again, that's from Rumi. And I want to really hold this idea central to our conversation today, that you are the entire ocean in a drop. And as we begin to explore how the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm, I think that we're going to keep coming back to this quote. So we evolved in the ocean, right? Our evolutionary tract, all life sort of emerged out of the sea. And as we were these single-celled and then multi-celled organisms, and then as we were full, you know, flesh and blood animals inside of the ocean, we were really bathing in this mother fluid, this briny liquid that I, you know, I, it is akin to the womb. This is the womb from which life emerges here on earth. And so for us to make our way onto land, we had to find a lot of different ways to bring the ocean with us because we couldn't just, we couldn't just exit the sea and be without the briny the briny material that we needed, that was the the foundation really for life. This motherland for all of life on earth, the ocean, our salty home is so vital to creation that our bodies created these elegant systems for maintaining salt. And it looked like a cascade of hormones and organs, things like kidneys, skin and adrenal glands that are working to keep the salt content within an animal's body, you know, whether that's reptilian or mammalian, uh, perfect for any given moment of time so that that body can function optimally. And within that, the blood that we take actually has the same percent content of sodium chloride NACL, which is salt, of the ocean. And so both our blood and the ocean have a 90% sodium chloride content. And the, the difference here is going to be in concentration, where our blood has a concentration of about 0.82% of sodium. The ocean sits at around 3.5%. But still, that 90% of the mineral content in the ocean and in our blood is sodium chloride. And I, again, I want to come back to this idea of the microcosm of the macrocosm, this living fractal, and how elegantly we are tied back to nature, back to our, our mother ocean, back to the, the waters of the womb from whence all life came from on earth. And before I go a little bit further into physiology, I actually want to give a shout out to the Greeks and to Aphrodite, who's the goddess of sexual love and beauty. And I think that Zach Bush has some really poignant ideas about beauty being central to life in a similar way that love is, and that so much of what comes to us in this life is created around beauty. And so as we harness this energy of Aphrodite, I want to mention that the Greeks believed that Aphrodite was born of the salty foam of the sea. And the exact myth is that... Uranus and Gaia had a son named Cronus, and 
As the parents fought, Gaia created a stone sickle, which she then gave to Cronus to attack his father. And Cronus castrated Uranus and threw his father's testicles into the sea. This caused the sea to foam and roil, and out of this white foam rose Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love and beauty. And so the Greeks actually believed that all of mankind had its origin in salted foam, which really is true when we think about our evolutionary tract and how we were really born out of the ocean. And so I wanted to share, I wanted to share this myth because I do think that this is This is something that we've known throughout time immemorial is that we have all of these traditions, all of these different mythologies and legends that exist around the the idea of salt. So where we are, you're crawling out of the ocean and our bodies have created these beautiful systems for maintaining the salt so that our brains can work, so that our muscles can function, our hearts can work and our blood. All of these things are are functioning with the help of electrolytes and specifically the mineral sodium NaCl. And in preparation for this podcast, I read two really critical books that that kind of ran on parallel tracks. And so one of them was The Salt Fix by James DeNicolantonio, who I am trying to get on the podcast, but he's a bit of a reach guest. And I'm not done trying because I want to talk through his lens as a PharmD about both salt and minerals, which is really his specialty. And so I'm still trying and I'm putting this out into the world in case, I don't know, somebody magically has a contact, right? And the other one that I read was Mark Kurlansky's History of Salt. And both of these books are incredible. James Antonio is really investigating the, the physiological effects and the vilification of salt that has happened over the past 100 years and making a strong case for the sodium that is in our diet. And I think this is really critical work. And I know that on this podcast, we've talked a little bit about how science, how mainstream narratives, and how the media have twisted certain ingredients within our nutrition and really vilified them. And so I know that we've touched base a little bit on how fat has been vilified, and this is really illustrated in both Gary Taub's The Case Against Sugar and Nina Teicholz's The Big Fat Surprise, where where fat really played a villain where sugar should have been the villain. And in that exact same vein, the salt fix uncovers how salt was vilified where the and it was the wrong white crystal that sugar was really the villain here. And so I really want to I really want to leave space for this idea that throughout time the truth of science and the perception of nutrition has been twisted and pretzeled. So talked a little bit of fat, about fat. Today we're going to talk about a little bit about salt and we're going to dive deeper into this as we go through the podcast. But the salt blood pressure hypothesis, which is really what formed the basis for the vilification of salt, is just that a hypothesis. And it was also based on not causation but correlation. And it's so 
important when we dive into this idea to remember that correlation is not causation. That just because data may correlate with a particular thing or a particular aspect within culture, within our diets, or within a scientific theory, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the cause. It doesn't rule it out either. But it's just important to hold that idea that correlation does not equal causation. And in The Salt Fix, James Antonio really uncovers a lot of this. He talks about how the salt blood pressure hypothesis led to this idea that our blood pressure was increased by eating more salt, causing some of the epidemics of hypertension that we were beginning to see 50, 60 years ago. And this was done in a very small study. And throughout the scientific literature and research that's happened over the decades, we've shown that the majority of people are actually, their blood pressure is not sensitive to salt. 80% plus people do not have a blood pressure that is tied to the salt in their diet. And with many people that are sensitive to salt, seeing just a one point reduction in blood pressure on a low sodium diet. With the flip side of that coin, looking at a low-sodium diet, which causes a raise in heart rate by up to four beats per minute. And so we have to really look at this through the lens of what are we, what are we losing in something that where we think we're gaining. And, you know, as usual, I think that we are beautifully complex systems and you can't reduce it down to one thing. Well, salt causes high blood pressure and low sodium will fix that. Well, what what other problems might low sodium cause and how do we look at the body through that holistic lens? Literally, you know, I mean, I think about this with holism, which is spelled H-O-L-I-S-M, but it literally is looking at the whole. And so I never want to look at just one single parts because the sum of our parts are greater than the whole. And I think that this is where we really get lost when we get into some of these dogmatic dietary recommendations that then caught on and just sort of snowballed like a, a runaway train. They just ran away with culture. And so the salt fix is really looking at that and really looking at, wow, you know, this, this nutrient, right? Like this vital nutrient is a critical component to maintaining the volume of the plasma in our blood to allow for normal cellular metabolism. It is really important to the nervous system, which we just talked about in last week's episode with Chelsea Connor, really important to allowing the concentrations of ions to send signals between neurons and cells and allowing for that nerve transmission and really for the electrical beings that we are. It's really important for our brain. It's really important for chloride in sodium chloride is a part of the gastric juices that digest our food. And so it's really critical to digestion and to destroying pathogens in the stomach so that they don't continue along the digestive tract. So we could go really deep. We could get really granular on this. And I'm going to avoid doing that in the hopes that 
we can get somebody on the podcast to really get granular because I think this is that important. And so the other book that I read was Mark Kurlansky's Salt, A History, which really uncovers how salt has shaped history, how it has started wars, how it represented the first monopoly, how it was one of the first things that was taxed by the government to make money in China a very long time ago. And The history of salt is really the history of human culture, especially after the dawn of agriculture, when we begin to aggregate into cities, because we needed salt and we depended on salt. And so it could be used, first of all, you wanted a city to be near to salt. And then there was some realization that you could control people if you taxed salt because it was so vital to life. I think one of the other interesting aspects of this are all the colloquialisms, which are just those sort of little phrases that we use in everyday life. When we talk about great people that just just exude that kind of goodness, we talk about salt of the earth people, right? And, and we're talking about what could be greater than to be the salt of the earth, And I just want to let that, I wanted to give that a little space to let that hit, because I think that this is so important. When we talk about salaries, that's derived from the French word from salt. And this came out of the Romans were actually, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It was their salary. And I think that salt as currency is not just a historical situation, but it is a modern situation too. And I think as a butcher, as a homesteader, as somebody who wants to preserve food, salt is, it is a currency. We require salt for preservation. And we see this, whether we're talking about cured meats like bacon or guanciale or salamis or prosciuttos, but we also see the need for salt in cheese, which is really just a way to preserve dairy as we can get it through all seasons. We see this in pickles, that this is a way to do this. We see this in things like sauerkraut and the entire deep and vast world of fermentation. As a butcher, we salt our wood butcher block at the end of every night because it both draws moisture out of the wood, maintaining the lifespan of that wood, and acts as a natural antimicrobial and natural antibacterial. And so the history of salt, it really continues, but I think that this is something that we really take for granted now. It is just our expectation that there will be salt on the table everywhere we go. This podcast is really exploring what salt can be. I want to make actually one more note around nutrition since so many of us that listen to this podcast are consummate meat eaters. I want to talk about carnivores get the majority of their salt through the blood and tissues of other animals because we carry sodium in our blood, in our tissues. 
when you are eating meat, whether you are a lion, a wolf, or a human, you are getting sodium in those tissues. And sodium actually concentrates within organ meats. And so it's going to be even higher concentrated in organs. And I think that this is really fascinating because as we look at this from a historical perspective, all animals, whether carnivores or herbivores or omnivores, including insects actually, have a drive for salt. And it used to be that we would follow herbivores to natural salt licks that cropped up across the land in order to find them because herbivores could not get their salt from other animals since they eat plants. And so they would seek out sodium deposits in the landscape or salt springs or even just really salty soil. So there's a real biological imperative here for salt that I think is really fascinating. And and as farmers, we know that we keep salt licks out for our animals so that they can self-regulate their sodium intake and that it is crucial and critical to them. In fact, we know that as farmers that if you take away a salt lick, you will decrease fertility in your animals. Now, I will let you, dear listeners, extrapolate from that what you will, but that's how critical it is. It's critical to the fertility of animals and for increased lactation. You want to have salt readily available for, for, mothers to increase lactation. And the Greeks observed this, that prior to giving birth and in those early weeks of lactation, ruminants would often drink seawater. They were seeking that extra salt to regulate their bodies. And we also know that a pregnant woman's body increases 40% in blood volume. What is that going to do for her needs of sodium. Now, none of this is medical advice, and you can find my very thorough podcast disclaimer at the bottom of this episode, but it is really here to stoke our curiosity about just how critical this mineral and this nutrient is, that this is not seasoning, this is not salt and pepper. This is a nutrient that our bodies need. And, you know, for those of us that work out, when you take electrolytes, that is going to be heavy in sodium and other minerals that allow your muscles to have a better performance throughout your workout when you have gotten electrolytes prior and after your workout. I think this is best illustrated through our biological imperative as predators. And as humans, we are omnivores. We can be predators. And after stalking and hunting down your prey and exerting a lot of energy and having really short bursts of sprinting, you are rewarded with this carcass and this muscle meat tissue and blood that is rich in sodium and trace minerals, which really replenishes your electrolyte needs. And so we see just the beauty of this really illustrated in nature. And so I don't know if you can, you know, run after a steak on your treadmill, but that's, that's the goal, right? This is so critical. And like I said, Josh and I buy a 25 pound bag of Redmond's about every nine or 10 months. And we eat a lot more salt than probably your average Americans. And I consider this a lot like a salt lick. I, when we pre-cook, so we pre-cook and batch our food, making like 
five to 10 pound batches of ground beef or pulled meat and then freezing them so they're just quick and convenient. And we purposely leave them a little bit under salted and we leave a little dish, a little crock of salt on the counter so that we can sort of determine what our salt thermostat is what uh, DeNicola Antonio really calls this, what it needs on a daily basis so that I can trust my body and my my taste buds desire for salt as being indicative of my own needs. So this, then this has been great for us and, and we're different in what we will salt on a daily basis. And so I treat myself exactly how I treat my animals. Here is a salt lick and you serve your body in the best way possible. And that is what is most important. I know that this is a lot to take in, And I want to remind you that, you know, it is my deep desire to do a deep dive on this with you all, uh, with some more experts as it concerns salt and to just really get curious about this topic. But we're going to start off with this, this wonderful woman, Nancy Bruns from JQ Dickinson in West Virginia, talking about her journey with salt. And we're going to talk about salt in this valley and there's some history and there's some, there's some dark history that's included in this too and salt brines in the South. And so it's a really complex subject and it's a really exciting one too, to see her family's return to doing this and what it's brought, not just her, but what it sort of brought to the state of West Virginia. And we just touch on that at the end. And I wish that I had really gotten to dig into that with her because it really, really touched my heart. So I hope after this, everybody's feeling salty. I'm going to send you good salt of the earth people out to listen to this great podcast. Please let me know what you think. And as a last quick note, we still have speaking of salt. We still have our Groundwork 10 discount with Hama Hama Oysters, which can be shipped direct to your doorstep and are an excellent way to fill your daily sodium needs as they are literally filled with the briny ocean. So that is available through the 31st of May. And I'm just encouraging everybody once again to order these awesome Hama Hama oysters. And then the last little bit of accounting is that I am still doing this thing where if you leave a review on the Apple podcast page, a written review can be good. It can be bad. It can be in the middle and you shoot a little snapshot of it to me. I send you a handwritten letter and it's, it's a little tip for tat on our time. I, I know that, you know, writing a review takes this extra step and it takes extra time. And I want to show you that I am equally invested in our relationship and our connection through this podcast and really helps me find a sense of grounding that I'm not just speaking into the void. And I want to continue to find ways to build this connection and I'm brainstorming about it. I've enjoyed the connection aspect where each week I read a review and we sort of connect that way. And so this review is called my favorite new podcast by Austin and Olivia. 
beyond enjoyable listening to the Groundwork podcast. Thoughtfully curated guests, lines of questioning with both utility and emotional resonance, and educational content every person in this country could benefit from. I think Kate's voice will help define this generation in food and agriculture, and I'm excited to see how the podcast evolves. Can't recommend it enough. Austin and Olivia, that review just warmed my heart to no end, and there is a letter in the mail for you. I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to give you over to Nancy Bruns of JQ Dickinson Salt in West Virginia. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I, I, like I said, I did, I did a lot of research prior to this conversation. I think just because salt isn't something that I had spent, it's something I had thought a lot about and used a lot about, but not something that I knew really about where it came from and the entire history of it. And I don't think that I had really paused to consider how integral salt is, not just to our food system and our health, but also what a geopolitical force it has been over the, over the centuries. And so this was just a really exciting exploration for me. And so just excited to be here. <laughs> well, great. Well, I appreciate you doing your homework. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Nancy Bruns. I'm a seventh generation member of the Dickinson family here in the Kanawha Valley of West Virginia. My business is JQ Dickinson Saltworks. Amazing. You know, throughout this, the research that I was doing, I was really struck by, first of all, just how much salt is integral to our bodies, like how much of us is salt and that that evolution, that that moment when we left the ocean, we sort of had to find a way to take the ocean with us because we had been bathing in that briny seawater for all of that time. And once we were on land and even as we sort of made our way out of the ocean, we had to build whole systems to preserve the salt content on our body. And that once we got onto land, there was and has been throughout our evolutionary history, this sort of constant searching for salt. And we see this in, in both, you know, humans and other animals in the animal kingdom. And so I'm just... I don't think I had considered how much it had influenced that and influenced culture as well, that most of our cities that we build are founded near a salt lick. Right. Exactly. It's um, uh, very much was a cultural and political decision-making factor in the development of communities and cities and countries worldwide. It's been, you know, subject to wars and lots of things. And for something that many people take for granted that just sits in the middle of the table, we don't think about wars being fought or decisions being made geopolitically over something so you know, minor, so to speak. Yeah. It's a big thing. Yeah, it really struck me just how much something that we take as a given. I don't think that many people really consider... Uh, they've never run out of salt and it is a staple on any table and in any kitchen and to really consider just how how important it's been throughout human history and so i'd love to hear a little bit about jq dickinson and where where it sits in in the world and the type of 
salt that you guys are bringing up. I believe you're on brine springs. I know there's there's several different ways of collecting and harvesting salt. And so I'd just love to hear some about JQ Dickinson and your salt. Sure. So um, I think one thing, just taking off from what you were just saying, is that to get people in the mind frame of just imagine what life would be like if you didn't have a refrigerator and the decisions that you would be making how you handle your food and feeding your family through the winter. You don't have a freezer and how important salt really would be in your life. And that's what people were dealing with when my family started making salt in the early 1800s. They were living in central Virginia uh, near Lynchburg at the time. And they heard about these salt springs over the Allegheny Mountains and the Canal Valley of Virginia, it was still Virginia. And so they saw an opportunity because of the uh, the way the country was developing and we were just coming out of the uh, Revolutionary War and standing on our own two feet. And uh, most of the salt that came to the uh, United States or the colonies before the Revolutionary War was, was coming from either England and Europe or uh, the Caribbean. And as soon as we declared independence, of course, the English cut us off from that. They weren't going to export salt to us. So we really had to scramble to uh, create our own salt supplies. So the fact that there was found this, uh, these salty springs inland in western Virginia really helped people move away from the coast and expand into the the center of the country. So um, my family moved to this area of what was Virginia at the time, now West Virginia, in 1813, bought property on the river, started making salt in 1817, and made salt until 1945. And so this, this source is the ancient Ipetus Ocean. It's a 400 to 600 million year old source. And it's the, if you go way back it's the uh, ocean where Pangea formed. So all the continents came together in the Ipetus Ocean. And then when they split back apart, they took this source with them. And as the, you know, through geologic changes, it dried up and was basically underground here, but has been redissolved by a freshwater aquifer. Mm. And this, so it becomes like a salty river. And then it pushes up in springs in places because of the overburden. You have, you know, you have weight on something that's going to find a way out. So it came up in springs. And so you had large animals gathering at the springs and licking the salt water because they, like us, need these big mammals need salt in their diets. And then as we, then that actually brought Native Americans to the area. Uh, for hunting and gathering salt for their needs. And then as we moved west across the Alleghenies, the European settlers, they found these very valuable springs and the industry started to grow. I was really struck, you know, my understanding of geology is is small, but I was really, I was really struck by in my research that one of the ways that people would find salt was by following herbivores, following, yeah. following deer, that they, they always knew where the salt was because like us, they require salt, but unlike us as herbivores, they don't have 
another source of salt. As omnivores, we get some of our sodium from eating the meat and blood and organs of mm -hmm. animals. And herbivores must get their salt from from the earth and from things like salt licks. And I think as a farmer, I was really familiar with the salt licks that we put out now, these square blocks of salt, but not this idea that herbivores would seek out a source of salt within the landscape that, that really guided humans and over the, over the years. Absolutely. And actually the, the paths that the settlers followed uh, to get across the mountains were made by animals and led them right to the salt springs because they it was a major gathering spot like you see in Africa where they migrate to the water source and they're coming from great you know great distances you know these animals were coming from great distances to these salt springs here and uh, it was so necessary not only for them but for the Native Americans too they were looking for these important things. Yeah. And then that sort of transformed the landscape in some ways, having these built-in paths that allowed settlers and Native Americans to tra traverse these sort of game trails that were following salt. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, um, and what is now the Midland Trail, which our business is on Midland Drive, but the Midland Trail, if you look that up, is a very old, you know, like a, a horse trail, but it developed out of the, the animal paths, and then it became the human path road, and eventually, you know, was highly trafficked. Yeah. Is just fascinating. And so then you're on a brine spring. And I, I didn't actually realize this as I had been doing all of this research into sort of dry salt mining and then evaporating seawater. I didn't realize that a brine spring was an ancient seabed that had then had an with an aquifer inside of it, creating this sort of salty river that's thrusting up out of the out of the earth. Right. So now we don't necessarily have the, the surface springs anymore. Our well goes down 350 feet to reach the brine aquifer. And then we draw that brine up and we put it in our, uh, into tanks and sunhouses. And, uh, we're using a, a natural solar evaporation process for it, but that's very different than our ancestors used timber and then coal to stoke furnaces to create the the salt on an industrial scale. Yeah, uh, to boil it down. How we're doing it, yeah. Yeah, I, as, as I was reading, it seems like there was a lot of innovation just in terms of initial drilling from a geological perspective in this drilling for salt and the use of hollowed out tree trunks um, and, and that, that that innovation sort of led to more technical drill styles, um, both, both in West Virginia, where you are, I'm sure, by your ancestors, but also in Sichuan in China, where they had begun drilling brine springs um, thousands of years ago. Yeah, the, as usual, the Chinese were way ahead of us. These things were a little slower, but um, yes. Yeah, so they did. They started out with hollowed-out tree trunks. They use sycamore trees because they grow really straight and tall and have a big diameter. Uh, they would hollow them out and put a man down in them, who, with a bucket and a shovel, would get down, and then they'd slowly lower that 
hollowed out tree trunk into the brine spring and as deep as they could get. And then that, then they could get a bucket down in there on a pulley and pull up the, the brine. So salted salt water is, is heavy. So the deeper you can get into it, the more salt you can get out. And so what does that process of extracting the brine water look like now? So, um, you know, they got very tired of that slow process. And so, you know, it took my ancestors um, two years to get their first well in through that process to get a really good source. At the same time, the technology was developing. And by the late 1820s or so, they had developed this drill bit, uh, a slip bit, it's called, where it would go through bedrock and then pull the the waste back up with it. Mm. And so they could get deeper and deeper down. Um, And that technology was used to drill the first oil well in Titusville, Pennsylvania. And so they would call in these drillers from the Kanawha Valley um, because of the salt industry here and use them in different places around the country for other industries. Yeah, I was really struck by that innovation coming out of the salt industry and by by some of the the ties between salt and oil that just kind of go up towards history that many of the the bigger the bigger oil drilling operations initially were found close to salt deposits. Right. In fact, uh, there was a, quite a bit of oil that was a waste product while the salt industry was active here at its height. They would just throw the oil into the river, which isn't great ecologically, nope, environmentally, but <laughs> that's not how they thought about things. Different they, time. Uh, they throw it in the river and it goes, it goes another place and they don't have to worry about it. Yeah, uh, different luckily, time. We think about things differently today, but the oil was the was the waste product and the salty water was what was valuable. Yeah, that's a really interesting historical framework to sort of view how things have changed that now salt is this right. is this staple at our at our table and I think all of us can can speak to how oil is changing and shifting these times. Right. And and oil well drillers and gas well drillers now often get into salt water while they're drilling their wells and that is the waste product that they have to dispose of properly. Mm. That's a fascinating lens of what's important to culture. Yeah. And what's valuable in culture. Some of that, as I was reading, I was interested in uh, different salts being prized throughout time, whether, and and it kind of flip-flopping from from pure white salt to gray salt and and which things were were prized and and fetched a higher dollar amount throughout time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is fascinating. Well, tell me a little That's bit. That's really what got me interested in, in salt. Yeah. Is that I, I started to, in the early 2000s, so I spent my early career, went to culinary school and was a chef, worked in different aspects of the food industry. And say in the early 2000s, I started collecting salts from around the world. They were becoming more available in the U.S. And I was just fascinated by the mineral contents and the crystal shapes and how the different salts interacted with food and and their different flavor profiles. And I, I just thought it was really, really interesting. And then um, started to learn about my own history in the salt industry, which I didn't know uh, when I was growing up. 
And it was just like an aha moment. Like, oh my gosh, I've got to make salt. We've got to get this going again. So yeah. So here we are. So I had read, I had read that you started, you went to culinary school in, in Vermont and then yes. you opened up a restaurant and, and had a catering business as well. Yes. So in between culinary school and then moving to Western North Carolina, where my uh, husband at the time and I, yeah, we bought, we bought a restaurant and uh, ran it for 10 years there and we did catering and we also did, you know, gourmet foods, retail, and wine, all kinds of things. So it was, it was fun. And we sold that. We had a buyer for our restaurant. So we said, yes, yes. please buy it. Please. That's when, <laughs> that's I when I that. uh, turned to another, <laughs> turned to another, another chapter of life. And so you had been sort of playing with these different salts throughout the world, and and without knowing that you came from this lineage of of salt producers, which is yes. wild. I mean, it's almost uh, like figuratively that the salt was in your blood because it, it, is, exactly. it is literally it was, and and <laughs> it is. <laughs> literally and figuratively, <laughs> but it was uh, a great, you know, moment when I really discovered this part of our history and, and how important it was. Yeah. So how do you, I, how do you even begin to look at reopening something like this and re reconnecting with this business? I mean, I think like in many aspects of the food industry, there's so much that has been forgotten. And I feel like harvesting salt certainly falls amongst those things. And so how did you, how did you go back into this business? Well, it, I had to figure out if it was just a personal fascination or if there were going to be some real legs to a business in it. So I started doing a lot of research and looking into other companies that were doing it. And um, Jacobson Salt on the West Coast is in Oregon. Ben Jacobson, I was kind of watching his progression. And, you know, a lot of people said to me, like, you're going to start, start a salt business, you know, it has importance, kind of perfected that. Now, what are you doing? And um, I said, no, this is not anything that's going to compete with Morton's. This is something that people really are going to value for the authenticity of the product and the, the local production and the care that we're going to take. So, you know, the first thing was that I needed to, I wanted it to have a very low environmental footprint. I didn't want to burn timber and coal like my ancestors did. So we had to figure out how, what, what did that process look like? And then, you know, because you, you, I knew that if you evaporated salt water, you're going to get salt, but it became much more complicated. There are, you know, there's a lot of calcium in the brine, so that's has to precipitate out because it uh, discolors it and makes it a little bit bitter. So that's an early part of the process. And then, you know, when we harvest it is really important. And there's a, a byproduct at the end called nagari, which is all the minerals that don't cling to the salt. And that can make the salt very, very strong and, and unpleasant tasting. So we need to make sure that that's not sitting in the salt too long. So once we got through all of that and got a really great product and tasted it, it's like, this is really, really darn good salt. And, um, and chefs agreed. I had some 
Seth friends that I knew around the country that agreed to be kind of a, a test market for me, and they were all in on it. And um, so we we thought we had some some legs to a business and started doing it. 2013. I love that. So it's been almost 10 years. That's that's when we started the and butcher that- shop. So, oh, is it okay? Yeah, great. Yeah, 2013. I'm curious just about the whole solar evaporation process, and I wasn't aware of the precipitation of calcium and the nagari. I'd love to hear just sort of from pulling the the brine water up from the earth, the whole the steps that it goes through to become a salt. Okay. Um, so we start with yeah our well. We um, turn the well. A pump on and then it comes out of a garden hose just like you'd have in your yard uh, we fill up tanks with the brine they're 2500 gallon tanks and we we want the brine to settle there uh, just because there are a lot of minerals in it and there's especially a lot of iron at that point so it while it comes out of the hose looking clear as soon as it hits oxygen it um, turns red so that it iron oxidizes to yeah so we want that iron to, to all oxidize and settle. It gets very heavy and goes right to the bottom of the tank. Once that process has taken place, we put it in our evaporation sunhouses, of which we have three. Um, they're big, uh, long beds, we call them, that they're raised up off the floor and lined with a uh, food-grade, uh, temperature-stable plastic. And we put the brine in there. Yeah, so we feed the brine from the tanks into the our solar, um, what we call sun houses. We have three evaporation sun houses, and we have big beds in these sun houses that are lined with a food-grade, uh, temperature-stable plastic. And so we fill them about three inches deep with, with the brine, and we let it evaporate in there and we're taking it from four and a half percent salinity to 15 percent salinity and during this time that calcium that's calcium carbonate precipitates out and so it we can see this happening when the the brine first goes in it looks perfectly clear like water and then all of a sudden it will get what looks like a layer of dust on the surface and then once those precipitate the granules of the calcium carbonate get heavy enough and break that surface tension. They collect at the bottom. It looks almost like sand. And that once the brine reaches 15% salinity, that most of that calcium has precipitated out. So we filter it then and we move it to what we call the granary, which is our crystallization sunhouse. And that's a term that our ancestors used for the um, building where the grains formed or the crystals. And so we have beds, we have 26 different beds set up in there. And that's, we have, uh, we fill those beds that are about an inch deep of brine. And if we have nice hot days within a day or so, we have uh, salt crystals starting to form. And uh, then we hand harvest them with uh, some scrapers and scoops and we dry it, we drain it and dry it. And then we sift it because we have three different crystal sizes that we sell. Mm. Uh, grinding salt is the largest and a finishing salt is the medium crystal. And then a cooking salt or popcorn salt is our finest crystal. And then we'll, then we'll package it. Or we'll take our finishing salt and add more flavors to it, like um, 
it's very important to us to be uh, used only locally um, grown flavorings like uh, ramps are a um, Appalachian staple in the spring. We're in ramp season right now. Yes, we are. Uh, they're a wild mountain onion. I don't know if you have them growing out there too, but they um, are very valuable. So we dry those and we mix those into salt. I have a local mushroom grower so we can make our mushroom herb salt. We use locally grown ghost peppers through a, a group called Patriot Gardens through the um, Air National Guard that grows peppers for us. And we do smoke salts with local applewood, or we have a partnership with a uh, distiller called Smooth Ambler Distillery, and we use their um, bourbon barrels once they bottle their bourbon they send us their barrels, which we use to do a bourbon barrel smoke salt. So yes, we have those six flavors. And then we do a brine mix, like for Thanksgiving, you yeah. brine your turkey, it's uh, just add water to our brine mix. It has lots of herbs that we grow ourselves and mix in there and spices. And we do some cocktail salts as well, like a craft cocktail salt or something like a margarita or People don't realize that even putting just a pinch of salt in your in your cocktail, especially a brown liquor, scotch, or bourbon, just a pinch of salt in it really brings more flavor out and will smooth out the flavors, kind of the harsh edges at times. Um, and then we do a Bloody Mary salt, which is one of our most popular products, which is a applewood smoked salt with uh, celery seed and roasted garlic and locally dried chilies. So people love that not only for their Bloody Marys, but also for steaks and potatoes and chicken and whatever else you put it on to cook. Yeah, these all sound positively divine. I think <laughs> oh, what you said, I didn't know that about adding salt to liquor. Um, I know that my husband salts his coffee and we <laughs> use salt constantly, but salt is sort of known for bringing out the sweetness and things and sort of taming the bitterness in from a culinary aspect. And so it's absolutely. It's fantastic in that regard. And I can see where that would lend itself well to liquor uh, as well. I wanted yeah, to, it does work well. I just wanted to, I'm curious. And I, before I lose it, the Nagari at the end of the process, the sort of, I, I'm curious to hear more about this uh, mash of minerals. Yeah. So the, this is something that I didn't really realize we would produce that we would have this liquid byproduct. And so I had to learn about that um, as we went and uh, I started reading about it. And what I learned was that it's a traditionally used to make tofu. It's a natural coagulant. So tofu is basically soy cheese. Mm -hmm. um, you make soy milk and then you coagulate that. And you're pulling the protein out to make a soy cheese. And while I'm fine with tofu, I thought, well, that's awfully limiting. What else could we do with this? So I started to draw on my chef skills and my food knowledge. And I thought, well, if it's coagulating soy milk, it ought to coagulate cow's milk or sheep's milk or goat's milk or whatever. So I wanted to see if I could make, you know, like a soft cheese, like a ricotta or goat's cheese or something like that. And um, it makes absolutely beautiful ricotta cheese. So it's uh, very useful that way. We have a company in Pennsylvania that buys it by the five gallon bucket and they're using it to make ricotta cheese Wow! as well, which is pretty cool. And it's just, it's different minerals that, that have sort of 
risen out of it? Do you know what minerals it's composed of? Just I do. So there, uh, it's 74 trace minerals. It's all the minerals that aren't clinging to the salt. So you have, it's very high in magnesium, uh, potassium, calcium, there's manganese and boron and selenium wow. and it's like a multivitamin. Yeah, really. it is. So it's, it's actually very good for you. Yeah. We have uh, a woman who makes soaps and lotions and bath products who actually uses it in her body butter because your skin is actually a great way to absorb minerals. Yeah. And we're often, because the soils and, you know, industrial farming, so much has been taken out of the soil. Most of us are magnesium deficient because that's how we used to get it. We used to have really good, strong dirt that was good for us. That's how we got a lot of vitamins. Yeah. I think but, over 85, um, I think over 85% of Americans are magnesium deficient. I mean, it's just almost a given and that is due to soil depletion of magnesium and soils, but you also, I mean, manganese and boron and selenium are also places where we are incredibly deficient. Deficient. And often, you know, if you're taking a multivitamin every day with vitamins and minerals in it, a lot of that you may absorb, but a lot of it you're not absorbing because in solid form, it just goes straight through your body, especially the, the minerals like magnesium. Um, so your skin in liquid form absorbs that. It's very good for you. So you can use it in a, you know, a body butter or put it in your bath water if you're a bath person. Or I put a few drops in my water throughout the day. Yeah. Just, if you take too much, it's, it's very unpleasant. It's very bitter. It's also called bittern, just like the bird, the bittern. It's very unpleasant, but a few drops in 16 ounces of water is, is a good amount. And uh, we also sell it as Dr. Dickinson's hangover helper. So we have a rip, stir, and gulp couch that you can put into some juice or tea or something uh, if you've had a hard night. Um, because when you're drinking too much, you're depleting your body of, of minerals and the salts and everything else that uh, your body needs. And it puts your body back into balance. It's, it's like a natural Gatorade or Pedialyte. Yeah, it's electrolytes. Like so it's ele exactly. It's those electrolytes um, that we so need. We need for our body to function. I mean, even even outside of hangovers, my my husband and I we filter our water through a gravity filter, and we add mm -hmm. minerals back in in the form of mineral drops. And I have a couple of different kinds, but th this this really intrigues me for that reason because we always look for mineral drops that have boron specifically and things like lithium and manganese that are that are so deeply depleted in our soils and difficult to get almost anywhere outside of organ meats which is where a lot of these things concentrate i mean you can find a lot of right. selenium and and a little bit of manganese in various organ meats and a lot more salt curiously enough uh, organ meats are much higher in sodium than muscle meat yeah, I guess that makes sense. That's fascinating. Yeah, they would kind of collect there when they as they're filtering things through the, the animal's body. But um, yeah, it's such an interesting thing. And you know, and people who exercise a lot, you know, are outside and it's hot and they're sweating. They keep the nagari in their water or something as they're replenishing their their chemicals and, and their salts. And so it's really really good for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, our bodies are fascinating in the way that they, they hang on and to and let go of so- sodium. And one of those places is in sweat. Um, and cortisol, actually, the stress, it's more than a stress hormone, but the stress hormone cortisol is a salt releaser uh, and allows salt to be sent to our skin specifically so that when we're in a fight or flight scenario, those salt stores are really available to our muscles so that we can have that better connectivity to our muscles and those nerve impulses. And uh, I mean, that, and in that situation, you're losing electrolytes, which then have to be replenished. And I, historically salt is, is so much more than just sodium chloride and is this sort of concert of, of minerals that comes with it. Yeah. Especially when it's naturally made like ours, if you, if you're just getting Morton's salt, that is, well, it's 99% sodium chloride. And then they put an anti-caking agent in it. So, you know, when they say when it rains, it pours, salt naturally doesn't do that. They really, you really don't want anti-caking agents in your food. No, you really don't. Um, <laughs> you so, really don't. But our salt has 6% uh, trace minerals. It's very high in magnesium, calcium, potassium, and 24 other minerals. So, and that gives it its unique flavor. So every salt that's made naturally from around the world is going to taste differently depending on where it came from because our salt is coming from deep underground and it's running through rocks. It's not like there's a void under there with this ocean, you know, people, especially children will kind of think about it. Oh my gosh, maybe there are big fish down there or do any fish or crabs come out of the, out of your hose. (laughs) And um, like, no, not really, but there's a lot of calcium in it. So there probably were fish dinosaurs and things down there at some point but but our brine is picking up the minerals from those rocks that it's running through and you know say atlantic seawater is going to have different minerals in it and a lot of things that may come from say seaweed that's not underground here or things that humans are putting in our Mm. surface ocean i was going to ask about that very and plastics, there are a lot of microplastics being found in salts that come from our surface oceans because we have, you know, big plastic issues. But then you have gray salt, like from the northern northwestern coast of France, beautiful gray salt. And the, that coloring is because of the minerals along the shore there in Brittany and, and the Celtic coast of France. I think what you just mentioned is uh, my husband and I are really particular about what kinds of salt we use and prefer things from ancient seabeds specifically because they haven't been, because there are so many plastics in the ocean and they've found a lot of microplastics in salt and we ingest an enormous amount of plastic, whether we know it or not, through food and contamination of our water and the way that we store food and and. There are other concerns. I know there's some heavy metal concerns sometimes with with sea salt. And so we almost yes. exclusively eat J.Q. Dickinson and Redmond salt. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, because we're not getting the heavy metals, either uh, arsenic and mercury or lead, uh, which you might find in uh, seawater. Yeah. So it's better to come from an ancient seabed. And to get away from Morton's, which I was really curious in this research, I learned that 
in terms of, of salt production here in the United States, the two biggest salt producers are Morton's and Cargill, which really struck me as somebody who's worked in animal agriculture for so long. Cargill is synonymous with being one of the biggest animal ag and beef producers in the country, though they've expanded their reaches. And I won't get into how insidious I think they, they are, but I was surprised to learn <laughs> that they were they were a big part of salt production as well. Yes, absolutely. And uh, well, if you ever fly into the San Francisco airport, you can see Cargill's big uh, salt beds there just south of the airport. It's interesting to see that, but that, you know, those are being used on industrial uses and hopefully not as much food, but still for food. Um, yeah. And I'm then desalination plants are giving their salt to Cargill and Morton's as well. Mm, which and I'm there's sure. There's a huge underground mine in, in Lawrence, Kansas, where uh, Morton's mines salt. Interesting. I'm sure that salt goes into agriculture. But also, I read that 51% of salt in the United States, States is actually used to de-ice roads, which oh, really, yeah. really struck too. me, because that is also ending up in our waterways one way or another. And, and it's not without incidents. No, I wish they'd. Um, well, there are some, some states that won't use salt. They just use chat, which I think is much better. Yeah, I agree with that. But, but we do get calls in the winter saying you haven't come to to scrape my driveway and salt it well it's not really on our on our radar that's us <laughs> um so tell me tell me a little bit more about the seasonality of salt harvest there is some yeah so we, yeah we do need the uh we need the sun to be out to make salt so we produce salt starting in march and then we go through november and then uh, we take the winter off and regroup, get through the holidays and uh, make repairs and get our equipment back in good shape and work on our inventory and things like that start again in March. So we consider our salt as an agricultural product. We feel like it's something we're pulling from the earth and we let mother nature do her job and we're at her mercy for sure. We can't control that. And then we harvest it when it's ready. So you know, even though salt is considered a, a mineral, it can't be it can't be classified as organic or inorganic or you know, so it's it's the only food that can't be classified organic. Um, but we we do think of it as a food and we want to make sure that we're delivering a high quality, organically made, clean, pure salt that's, you know, mineral rich and, and healthy as it can be. I was struck in my research, uh, you know, sort of in, in how naive I've been of salt, that a lot of salt production, at least in Europe, really just happened along sunnier strips, that there wasn't as much salt mm -hmm. in Nordic countries or in England initially, because it requires solar evaporation being one of the best ways to, to yield salt. And you need the presence of the sun and heat in order to do that. That's right. Yeah. So the like the southern coast of France and, and Italy, um, Sicily produces a lot of salt, Trapani salt, and, you know, the north coast of Africa. And you have uh, mines uh, like Salzburg, Austria has an underground mine, hence the name. And then Poland has an enormous salt mine. Uh, the 
may have seen photos of that uh, not only is it mine, but people have been down there carving the salt into all these different amazing things like chapels and uh, beautiful, beautiful like relief sculptures. And For hundreds I, of years. Well, my bucket list to go. Yeah, it's been really incredible. So salt has been with us for a long time as not only as a, as a food product, but as say art and culture. Yeah. I think it drove a lot of art and culture as well. And I mm-hmm. think uh, one of the things I was going to ask you about is preservation, because I think that salt was really initially this thing of preservation. And I don't think we think about it in that way as much anymore. Maybe as a butcher, I might think about salt as a, as preservation a little bit more, but it was a way of making food last through the winter. I mean, as we talk about seasonality, it was a way to have meat that lasted through the winter. It was a way to pickle vegetables. It was a way to extend the life of, of our food sources. Absolutely. That was really important. And um, yeah, you, you had to plan, you know, when you slaughtered your, your animals about, you know, do you have enough salt to slaughter them now? or not. If you didn't have salt, you weren't going to slaughter. So it was, there's a, my ex-husband was actually very interested in salt as a, you know, a decision-making factor in, in history and different cultures around the world. And he helped me do a lot of research while he was doing research. And he discovered that the, during the Revolutionary War, George Washington and his troops had a lot of animals. They had a lot of cattle, but he wrote back to Washington and said, don't send me any more cattle. My men are going to starve if you don't get me salt because <laughs> he didn't have salt to preserve them, yet they're surrounded with cows. Um, so it's kind of interesting that you wouldn't think that there is that correlation. But, you know, without refrigeration, if it's the middle of summer, that beef is only so good for so long. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was really the only way to preserve it. And and historically, a lot of salt was was shipped as a foodstuff. It was salted fish. And that was the right. way that people received salt, in part, I think, from an economic perspective, they could fetch more money as salted fish than it could as salt alone, but also because of the sheer weight of carrying salt. Salt is not a light material. And so transportation no. really became an issue as it was it was quite heavy. Right. And it was often before the revolution, it was often used as ballast in the ships. Bags of it were ballast as they came over. And then of course, you know, salt, salt cod really fed. That was the main food for slaves. And that was a huge, huge thing, salt cod and, and the way they preserved because the Atlantic was so rich with these fish and they found salt and, you know, that's how they preserved it. And so they could feed, and you know, and it fed men on on ships, and it fed people working in different areas. And it was um, it's really interesting. Uh, Mark Kurlansky's book; he's written several books. I don't know if you've read those. Uh, one is called Salt. Uh, actually, mentions the Dickinson family in there when he talks about the salt industry here in Malden. But he's he's done one on cod, which there's a lot of overlap there, and then he's done one on oysters. So it, it's, I love the way he digs into the history of just one food item, but there's a lot of overlap between the three of those things and um, really interesting reading. 
I haven't read cod, but I read I read salt in preparation to to speak with you and was really enchanted by the way that he wrote it and the way that that just throughout time and history and the the great influence that salt has had. And I know that he covered that cod is particularly easy to salt because it it is a less fatty fish, unlike anchovies or sardines, making it really apt to be preserved in salt. And that this was wartime food. This was the easiest food to go to war with. And that that salted cod industry really changed Europe. And and it was yeah. it was really fascinating to read about. Yeah, it's so interesting things we don't think about that aren't in our history books when we're growing up. No. And I think, you know, my husband and I were talking about this morning, food really is where history starts. I mean, this is the most important thing and the wars and the cultural institutions that food has motivated, the art that food has motivated, which you mentioned, Mm -hmm is fascinating that that we have and I talk a lot about this on this podcast we've been driven by food for hundreds of thousands of years it used to be that our lives were mostly consumed by waking up and hunting and gathering and then sitting around a campfire and cooking and preserving and right. <laughs> and when you start getting into culture and the beginning of agriculture really which happens 10,000 years ago all of that is centered around food, where we build our cities has to be close to water and it has to be close to, which I didn't realize until this, salt, that so many cities were founded close to that and that food was used as currency, whether you're talking about salt cod or salt itself, which is the Romans paid their soldiers in salt. Um, Yeah, that's where salary comes from. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And it just informs language and the way that we utilize a geographical area and the way that we preserve food. I mean, in some ways, the history of salt is a history of preservation, too. It's a history of cheese and of prosciutto and of cured meats (laughs) and of salami. Right. Yeah. It's uh, the salt here. So that this valley grew up to be the largest salt producing region of the country in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. And one reason for that was they had a market in Cincinnati, which was is on the Ohio River. And we're on the Kanawha River, which feeds into the Ohio River. So you could get the salt from here to Cincinnati very easily. And salt and Cincinnati was known as Porkopolis. So you had all these hog farmers because the mountains, you know, you're on the plains and you have a lot of, of hogs there. But then Chicago started to grow up as the meat center of the country as, you know, people were moving west. And we couldn't get salt from here in the Kanawha Valley to Chicago by river. And the rails railroads weren't running from here to Chicago very easily either. So that's really when the, this area had its downturn in the industry. And salt was then moved uh, through the Great Lakes from upstate New York into uh, Chicago that way. And then they found huge salt reserves in Michigan, which is right there, close to Chicago. So canal salt, not obsolete. We kept going until 1945, but we were the only ones after uh, 1890, I think. So 
but it was also an industry that here was, you know, built on the backs of slaves. It was, uh, we were in Virginia and it was, you had slave labor, which was the key part of the success of it. And you had the river and you had the resource and you have the fuel. So it was all of those things together that um, made this area successful, unfortunately, as slave labor is, but that was the reality of the time. Yeah, it has a really complicated history. I mean, I think I think across the world, salt is tied into some really complicated histories and some sad histories, yeah. as yes. as well as some some human triumph. Both right, and so you know, we try and make sure that we we share that as just being as transparent as possible, and because we think it's important that people understand the whole the whole history and not just what's more pleasant to hear about. Yeah. Absolutely. And tied with the the coal mining industry in West Virginia too, as, well, as exactly. the means of yeah, evaporation, maybe. which is a was very much driven by slave labor and later I still I think I don't know that much about where coal stands in West Virginia, but still a very complicated industry. Yes, very complicated. But uh, yeah, it was uh, salt came first in West Virginia. And then uh, as they were looking for fuels to stoke the salt furnaces, and they timbered, you know, all the area around here, they turned to coal and found how rich these mountains were. And that so coal really uh, had its start with the salt industry. And then, you know, then they grew into where we needed steel and things like that. And it was a valuable valuable fuel source that really grew the country. Can't deny that, but it, it, it has gotten complicated here yeah. for sure as we're, although the state is really working hard to make some moves for more renewable energy and solar on old coal mines and uh, doing some reforestation projects and things like that. So it, there, there's a, there's a turn, which oh. I'm, thinking is very positive thing. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that, the, the whole history. I mean, the whole thing, even the, even the bets that are, that are different than, than what we might expect to find in the history of right. salt. How do you think of this as an intergenerational business? One of the things that I've talked to several farmers, and I really think of what you're doing as farming. I've talked to several farmers about what intergenerational businesses, even if they're sort of new to you that you that you sort of stumbled upon um, and what it means to to bring something into the future in a different way, like to bring some of these old traditions, whether that's harvesting salt. I recently talked to somebody who's a fifth generation oyster farmer out mm-hmm. in in the Pacific Northwest. And so what it means to kind of bring these traditional foods and this farming wisdom into a more modern setting? I think that it's important to always keep that history alive with you, um, even if you're building something that's very different than what your ancestors did. I, um, you know, I'm coming to the same land where my ancestors worked for five generations. And uh, that's, a weight on my shoulders and not necessarily a negative weight. It's, it's a good thing to carry with me. And it keeps me moving in the right direction and working hard to make sure I'm successful and to make sure I'm carrying on the family name the right way. 
you know, it's it's a responsibility that's not there in a in a business that you're just starting from from scratch because you don't want to disappoint the family or the the relatives that might still be alive. But it's also something that that gives me strength for sure and and purpose. And I feel very blessed to be doing something that that is so meaningful to me and doing it in a way that's very different than the way they did it. But I think the right way for the time we're in and having that low environmental footprint and using everything I'm pulling from the earth and being a good steward. You know, we we talk a lot in our family about being a good steward because we have other family businesses going on. And that's really at the base of all our discussions is how, how are we stewarding the land and, and thinking generation, not just five or 10 years down the road, but generation, which we think in 25 to 50 years. Yeah. We talk a lot about that. How do you, you know, it's that, that idea of how do you prepare for a child 100 years before it's born, that we've lost (laughs) some of that generational thinking. And I'm curious what that means to you to what it, what is it to be a good steward for you? Oh, I mean, that's on our, on our radar all the time because it's, you know, we've made it seven generations with our family businesses, not necessarily with the salt, but with some other, other things. And I'm the leader of, of those businesses as well. And we're always thinking about, okay, the children down the line, what does this mean for, you know, we, we do have eighth, ninth, eighth and ninth generation kids alive now, but, you know, what does it mean for the 12th generation? And are we making good decisions? How is this going to affect them? And especially in a time where there's so much tension in the world and so many different views and you don't want, we certainly don't want children to deal with the things that we're dealing with now, but um, no, you, you want to leave a better place for them. It's funny, as you were talking about it, that I was thinking about salt's ability to bring together everything, right? Like everything on a, on a table and you sit down to a, a big family dinner, salt is the thing that ties all of these things together. Like it is the thing that adds that vibrancy and flavor and sweetness and vivaciousness to our food. But in some ways it, it really unifies our food in that too. And I think in, in some ways us. And as you were speaking, I think we do face a lot of really difficult things. And I think we, we face a lot of divisions and a lot of cracks and you no, know, there's, I I've, I've always believed that food has the power to bring us all to the table together, but in some Absolutely, ways at the heart of that is salt. <laughs> I would agree because um, no matter how good the food is, you still do need a pinch of salt. Yeah whether it be an amazing steak or beautiful vegetables, a pinch of salt always takes it just a little better. But I do think that that sharing a meal together and having good conversation, sharing high quality food, just having that community is important to have good conversations. And I think it can be very healing. I also think it can be a place where good ideas grow and we've become better people. Me too. Me too. And that, that, that's been a really big impetus. I know for me in the food industry is that I think that this is something that everybody can come to the table for. Like we can all, we can all talk about food mm-hmm. and it does really have a unifying factor. And so I 
appreciate that that salt is a really big part of that conversation as well. I'm curious just to touch base on before we stop salt and health. I don't know if this is something that you want to speak to, but salt is incredibly important to our health. I mean, it's really essential to to us as humans. And I think it's been maligned over the years in certain ways. It has, yeah. Yeah, within within the medium within dietary culture, a lot of low sodium and and there's a lot of right. information now that 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 might have been quite misinformed. Absolutely. There's uh, I have a cardiologist friend here in town who he's in his 80s now, but he's talked to me several times about it that he said Nancy don't let the things we thought 20 years ago about low sodium diets affect your business because it's just not true. The way that we were taught to keep people away from salt is, is not right. That there said so there are some people that really do need to be on low sodium diets, but it's not for everybody's heart health to be on low sodium diet. It's actually more detrimental to your diet. It is. And the way we think about it is, you know, if you're, if you're eating and salting your own food, you have control over it. If you're eating a lot of processed food and fast food and things like that, where it's just full of salt and you're getting way too much, then that's not good for you. But if you're controlling your own intake and you're using a high quality mineral rich salt, then that's great. And our salt actually is, it's more flavorful and a stronger, bolder flavor than say a Morton salt. So you're actually using less and because it has a mineral content of 6%, it has less sodium chloride in it. So it's actually a win-win. You use less, there's less sodium chloride in it, and it's uh, more flavorful. So it's truly the right choice. I think too that our, our thirst for salts naturally would contain some thirst for minerals, that it's not just an ACL that we are, that our bodies are craving when we have that salt craving, that it's minerals because the two always would have come together from an evolutionary sense. And Absolutely. I know that we think of, in our household, we think a lot of it about it like a salt lick that we put out for our cows, that they have a natural idea of how much salt they need on any given day. And so as we cook our food and we cook every meal at home, we salt individually different dishes to our own tastes to that day to satisfy what feels like our body's craving for salt. And there's a there's a really great book called The Salt Fix by James DeNicolantonio that really covers how salt has been vilified and the studies that were attached to that vilification and how misunderstood it really was. And that perhaps we looked at the wrong white crystal when we vilified salt and that vilification should have been towards sugar instead. <laughs> I think that's a very good point. Yeah. So I, I think it's just, it's really a fascinating ingredient and how it touches so many different things. And, you know, the uh, generalizations and stereotypes that people think about it just need to be debunked. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think I just think that everybody get in touch with some real true salt and and utilize (laughs) it. And you can feel that difference just even in your body. 
you can. And, and, you know, we need to listen to our bodies and what they're telling us and what they need. Yes. And to strengthen that relationship, that muscle of trust between yeah. ourselves yeah. and our bodies. Exactly. Your body does tell you. Yeah. I know that you, uh, you're very passionate about Appalachia and the place that you're in. And you don't just have JQ Dickinson, but you have a, a, a mercantile, a, yeah, the Appalachian Mercantile, where you sort of put together all of these products from Appalachia. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, sure. Yeah. See, we're here. Yeah. West Virginia is in the heart of Appalachia and it extends from you know North Georgia and Northern Alabama all the way up to Maine. And it's a very, it's a great culture and a lot of history here in Appalachia. So when we think, we think of ourselves as part of a sustainable economic community, which I'm sure you, you do too with your, your butcher shop and raising the animals and dealing with with growers. And so over the years, I've developed these relationships with other um, producers that use our salt, say, in their jams and jellies or seasoning peanuts in Virginia or um, making potato chips or anything. And I started to think about, okay, if we're our, they're using our salt, then we should be selling their products. And then why don't we grow into something that where we're curating all these amazing Appalachian products and not only in our shop, but in being able to share our collection of things with, with the world. So we started the Appalachian Mercantile, uh, which is a subscription box business and people can subscribe seasonally or monthly. And we put uh, six to seven items, uh, either food, we have food, um, crafts, and home goods in there and um, ship them out and uh, sharing Appalachia with the world. We ship now probably 200 plus a month and growing. And um, it's great to support other Appalachian producers and to share those products with people all over the place because there are things that aren't sitting on the shelf of Whole Foods in LA or, you know, your gourmet shop and in Boston. So it's, um, we're helping those producers expand their production and getting the word out about what good things go on here. I love that. I'm sure, I always think it's interesting how food businesses tie us to a place, you know, uh, that you really get to learn what's around you, both from your natural community and your ecosystem, but in, in the community of people that you build around you too, that are also tapping into that. And I just think that's a, it's a really beautiful mission to help support those other, other producers and makers. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just makes sense too. And we, we think about it vertically, everything that we do and we buy, we want to make sure that it's from as close to us as possible. And so we have our lids are for our jars are made in Wheeling, West Virginia. Our jars mm. come to us from Kentucky. Our labels are printed in Kentucky. Our, um, you know, we're using local growers to grow herbs for us for our different seasons. We have, um, you know, the ramp producers that are going out and somebody who's pickling the bulbs, we buy the leaves from them. So if we can keep that money as local as possible, it really, it makes a difference. 
and even though we're a small company, it, it trickles down. You know, I, I don't want to support businesses overseas necessarily. I, you know, if I can't find it in my county and looking at the state and I'm looking in the region, and I'm, you know, look in the United States. So it's, it's something that goes through everything that we do. And we always want to support that local economic community. We feel the same way. I think, and it really yeah. does begin to change the way that you feel as a member of that community and just how mm-hmm. connected I think it makes you feel to your home, your re- both the immediate and your sort of regional home and your country as well. And I think that there, there's a lot to be said for, for beginning to rebuild some of that local connectivity that I think we've lost since the industrial revolution. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we also do, we're, we have an event space here at the farm. And so we have, uh, we started doing uh, chef dinners where we bring in a local chef and we ask them to source their food as locally as possible. And we serve, you know, four or five or six courses to a group of 75 guests. And uh, then we give a portion of the proceeds back to a local food farm or, or healthy lifestyle initiative in the area. And just seeing the talents of the local chefs and how they utilize the ingredients and bring out the beauty and the flavor of those ingredients. And, you know, sitting around, uh, we we set up long tables, so it's really communal. Although Mm. with the pandemic thrown in there, we've changed that slightly. But we're hoping to get back to that this summer where we're all around the community table. And people love that. They meet new friends and they're enjoying great food and it's outside and a beautiful setting. And then it's just supporting, you know, not only the chef, but the farmers and the wait staff and, you know, and uh, giving back to the community as well. Yeah, I love that. I don't think there's anything like having dinner at a long table. I think that is just right. uh, I, that is just the peak of, of really getting to come together around food for me. Exactly especially when there are people that you didn't know before and then you leave as friends and yeah. make plans for the next weekend or, hey, let's do this again. Yeah, I love that. I know we're wrapping up. I want to make sure that there isn't anything that I missed that you really want to share with everyone about J.Q. Dickinson. I think you covered it really well. I appreciate all the research you did. You're a very well-informed uh, reviewer. So, um, no, this has been an excellent conversation. I appreciate yeah. it. I have one last little question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast, uh, which is, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And this can be in your personal life or in your business life. And I think we kind of, we might have touched on this as you spoke about that long-term vision for the future, but what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? Well, I think that that does touch on a lot of of what I do. And I, I feel like when I started this business, I with my brother and we did lay the groundwork for something new, even though we were reviving something old and not only did it become something important for us, it became an important business in the eyes of other West Virginians because so many people throughout the state had connections to the salt industry because West Virginia is the state where people, it's not a transient state. People love their roots here. Yeah. And they've been here for multiple generations. And so when we brought this business back, it touched so many people. And the fact that I have a whole state full of ambassadors 
is incredible. And the work that they have done to grow my business is really unbelievable. So, but it's also helped people to see that you can take an old industry in the state and turn it around and make it something new that is clean and environmentally friendly and successful. And so we're kind of, we've been the, um, a little bit of the, the star for the state economic development saying, okay, look, look what this business did and it can be done with other things. And let's think about, you know, not being so dependent on coal and how can we turn that. And so, you know, we're one small cog, but I think we, we stand out as a, as a leader in thinking differently. I agree. I love that. And I, I think that's beautiful in what you're bringing to West Virginia and how West Virginia is rallying around that, that mission and that idea. So I don't know if that laid the groundwork or not, but um, I think that was perfect. what it brought to mind, at least. I think that's perfect. Uh, Nancy, thank you for, and then we're, go ahead. Did you have in your email to me to think about salt and pepper and if they should be divorced? No, but I, no, I didn't, but I have personal opinions about this. So I can't wait to hear what your opinion is on this. <laughs> well, should I get salt and pepper to be divorced. <laughs> should they? Um, I can't remember who sent that to me. I've been doing a lot of interviews lately and that was something that somebody sent me in an email and I just thought, wow, that's so interesting. And, um, I actually think they should because I don't think they should be. I don't think you should salt and pepper all of your food. I think you should salt some food and you should pepper other food. And it shouldn't be back to back, even though we do still salt a pair of salt and pepper grinders. But I do think they shouldn't. They don't necessarily need to go hand in hand all the time. I agree completely. I actually think they are two wildly different things too. One is a one is a mineral that is essential to your body and the other mm-hmm. is is I mean it's amazing but it's it's just kind of a plant food. It doesn't have the same essential nature and we actually this might be blasphemy for some people. We keep our pepper grinder in a cabinet and it doesn't come out all that much, but I keep a big old quart crock of salt on our stove <laughs> and that gets used all of the time. And so I, and as a butcher too, we tell people don't pepper your steak before it goes in the pan. Number one, the pepper is going to bitter. And number two, we want you to really taste that meat. Just leave it with salt. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need all that pepper. It's fine. Right. So I think that's a very good point. Yeah. It goes on the steak or into the pan and it immediately gets bitter as it sears in there. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you brought up that question. I think that's that's the perfect way to wrap this up. Do you want to let people know where they can find you and where they can find JQ Dickinson? Sure. Our website is jqdsalt.com and there are links there to our shop and events and recipes and our whole story and history and more than you'd want. And on the cover, there's a on the front page, there's a picture of of my family uh, enjoying a meal on the farm. There are four generations of us sitting around. Uh, it was the kickoff to the business and also a photo shoot. But um, that was a great moment for all of us to be there on the farm in front of the barn and enjoying what was coming next. 
Oh, I love that. Well, I encourage everybody to find you guys. I know that we just think that your salt is fantastic. And so I hope that a lot of other people find it and get to experience it. Well, thank you, Kate. It's been thank a really you. fun afternoon with you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at GroundworkCollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.